0: This is Book Speaks and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with award-winning journalist Rennie Edelodge about her debut book titled why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. As a journalist, Rennie Etel Lodge has written for various prominent publications, such as The New York Times, The Voice, Daily Telegraph, Guardian, and The Independent, just to name a few. She is the winner of an MHP30 to Watch Award and was chosen as one of the top 30 young people in digital media by The Guardian in 2014. She has also been listed in L100 Inspirational Women List and The Roots 30 Black Vile Voices Under 30. She has been recently long-listed for the 2017 Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race explores issues from eradicated history to the political purpose of white dominance, from whitewashed feminism to the inseparable link between class and race. Rennie o. Lodge offers a timely and essential new framework for how to see, acknowledge, and counter-racism. It is a searing, illuminating, and absolutely necessary exploration of what it is to be a person of color in Britain today. Rene Eto'Lodge, welcome to Books Speeds and Beyond.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for being on. So let's jump right into it. What is the story behind this book, and what specifically compelled you to write this?
1: Oh, well, the story is... It originated with a piece that I wrote on my own website, oh gosh, almost three years ago now, early 2014, um, and the piece was titled exactly the same thing, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Um, I, I wrote that, not not frivolous, frivolously, it's not like just one day I woke up and I was like, oh, forget it. It was <laughs> rather that I was in this sort of, I had been attempting to do exactly that for a good few months and I was really getting nowhere. It was like banging my head against a brick wall. Mm -hmm. Um, I was involved in sort of like various progressive and left and feminist circles. um, And these circles are very white dominated. And whenever you attempted to try and discuss race with them or perhaps challenge their priorities uh, and their viewpoint as white dominated, they were just sort of, they would cringe. They couldn't take it. They, they they shut down they became extremely defensive very hostile and um and it was so difficult it was so difficult um so i was also involved in sort of like women of color only circles and we would discuss that sort of defensive response often and um and for some reason this is going to sound really weird but uh, one day i was sent um a film called The Colour of Fear, um, directed by a man called Lee Manoir. It came out in the early 90s.
0: Okay, And
1: yeah. uh, It reached a lot of prominence because Oprah showed it on her show, <laughs> on her show like in the early 90s. Um, and in, in this film, which is used a lot in diversity training initiatives now, um, it was essentially like a group of men of colour and two white men, and they were discussing race. And you could see those defences come up, and at least one of the white men in in the group um, and after i watched that film i, I just you know to, to watch the hostility and the anger from the white man as the men of color were attempting to try and speak their truth you know i sort of fell into a bit of a despondency and i thought wow this is never going to change yeah. you know yeah. i need to withdraw from this conversation because i i'm not getting anywhere like and so what i did with that piece was really attempt to articulate what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that, of that anger and hostility that sort of comes from unexamined white privilege.
0: Yeah. It, it, um, when I read that, I was like, God, this is something I feel like I should write every week. I mean, it really <laughs> touched the nerve, uh, within me. And, um, you know, I really was able to relate to it. Like, like how, what was the response, uh, from that? And, 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 was there any kind of pushback from from that?
1: Well, I, I think, you know, I think a lot of people anticipate angry responses to my work, but with both the blog post and the book, because the book was really me attempting to set the agenda mm-hmm. uh, and to get across a, a perspective that i had been struggling to because white people kept shouting at me. <laughs> um, but in the response to both, it really has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, in terms of people getting in direct contact with me at least. So when that blog post went out, um, you know, I've always been somebody who r- writes. I, I've always written diaries. You know, when MySpace was going, I was always writing there. Like, um, I've always been a somebody who writes. And so my blog at that time in my life was very much that. It was something for me to process the world. So I didn't really expect there was no expectation. It wasn't written for people to read it, per se. Mm, mm-hmm. But once I pressed publish, like, that just shot all over the world. It it went so quickly. It, it just, you know, I mean, that's the beauty of the internet, isn't it? Like, so many different people um, yeah. sort of read it. And, you know, I still, I travel around Europe for, for work. I, I was in Australia on, on book tour earlier this year, and the amount of people who I've met over the last few years who said, oh, yeah, I remember reading that in all sorts of different countries, um, (laughs) really went far and wide. And I think that that response, you know, just as you alluded to, a lot of people could relate. A a lot of people had dealt with that struggle. And conversely, I think a lot of white readers were shocked at the sort of, like, um, what they'd been doing (laughs) to (laughs) to, to, to be friends. And they thought everything was all good. But they didn't understand that what they were doing was causing such despair exactly. you know yeah
0: i i uh, i think um now if we get a little into the into the book um in the first in the first few chapters of the book y- you know uh you write about the histories of black people black activism and racism against black people in the UK why do you recall these histories in your book what, what what's the significance of this so
1: in my in my education in, in the UK, you know, we have Black History Month. We're towards the end of it now. It's every October. Mm. And Black History was relegated to this month, October. And, and in that month, like, almost everything that I learned on the national curriculum growing up in London was U.S.-centric. Mm. Um, almost as though, you know, the stories of Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman, as inspiring as they are, You know, they were very much um, that was that's taught to British kids in British schools. And we're told that's where the struggle has been. That's where the problems have been. And there's a sort of silent implication that there's no issues here.
0: Wow. Really? Um, With with a British imperialism and everything? That's amazing.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) So I was deeply frustrated. And I think that, like, I understand that some of that pushback that I was getting from white British people when I was attempting to talk about race was because of the education that they had received. Mm. Yes, some you know, I think in the age of information there should be no excuse for ignorance, but I could recognise that there was this huge whitewashing and deficit of our of like understanding of what race has meant for Britain and how Britain has played a role in shaping what race and power means, you know, across yeah. the world, you know, and that's something that we are just not taught, so it was really important for me to sort of situate that, my political arguments in that context and so that's why, you know, there's sto- there's stories about Dr. Harold Moody, who's considered Britain's Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. There's discussions about very recent history, stuff that happened only in the last 30 years in terms of um, riots and like deaths in police custody and things like that, that are absolutely to do with race in Britain. And I thought it was really important to to contextualise, you know, our, our current day, because after Brexit, I think a lot of people, mostly white people, um, white liberals, sort of sat up and they were like, oh, my God, like, this isn't not the country I recognise.
2: Right.
1: i right. And it's frustrating because I think, you know, as a British person of colour, you, you want to say, hey, we have been telling you this. Right, right. <laughs> Um, but you know, after a democratic vote, that's when white liberals become suddenly aware that racism yeah. exists in the country. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah. I think that when I was I was reading a little bit that a chapter. If I if I read it correctly, that it was almost like, how do you think people of color, black people, got to Britain? And I think you, thought, I think you said they thought it was just immigration, not not even anything else like no 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 coerced nothing had to do with slavery it's like that's not even in the psyche of a lot of Britons that that is a, a big reason of why black people were in the country
1: yeah I know it's, it's utterly absurd huh. um you know so I'm Nigerian I have Nigerian heritage even I've lived in Britain you know for my whole life um but there's this sort of understanding weird understanding you know i even refer to myself as a second or third generation immigrant but we're coming from a i'm coming from a context of a country that was basically ruled by britain until the 1960s mm-hmm. you know yeah um that commonwealth <laughs> uh reaches far and wide across the globe um and so it seems actually absurd uh to refer to myself as an immigrant um yeah. it, it seems like anyone from a a country from the Commonwealth um, has a has a claim to be here and live here, but yeah. yet there's this uh, atmosphere of othering.
2: Um, yeah.
1: They don't belong, and not only that, but I think you can stop the average Brit on the street, and they wouldn't know right. <laughs> that Nigeria was a
0: uh, wow was ruled yeah. in the, of the
1: 1960s. Yeah, I think they wouldn't know actually.
0: Wow, that's that is amazing, and 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 I thought what was interesting, you were talking about. Um, When you were in college, you had this African studies class, and one of your friends, you had had a white friend in there, and as you were learning about uh, black history, she decided later not to be part of the class because she just felt like she didn't really need to know that, or I guess she was so uncomfortable that she just kind of like, this is unnecessary for me. And and you kind of talked about in a bigger issue what that really means. If you can Kenneth.
1: I think that attitude exemplifies Britain's, um, you know, attitude towards race, which is, it's not relevant, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, that's not something that we need to be concerning ourselves with. This is, a, at the very best, it's the concern of people who are negatively affected. Right. <laughs> I think that's uh, the attitude that I, um, yeah, I was, you know, at that time, I was, like, distressed by that person's behavior and now as a as an adult, uh, rather than a uh, somebody who was in basically the far, late end of my teens at the time, I can understand why I was frustrated. It was like you don't get to opt out. Right. I yeah. didn't get to opt out of learning about Henry VIII <laughs> Right. You know, when yeah. I was in school. Um, but with with black British history, white people do feel like they get to opt out. They don't feel it's relevant to them, which mm-hmm. is absolutely the problem.
0: Right, absolutely the problem. We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
2: It's all fine
3: and dandy when the show starts. Before then, avoid it like a ghost fart. I guess what ups and ups, but for the most part, nobody smiles at me because I'm a black man till the show starts before they avoid avoided like a ghost fart I guess it's what I've seen nice, but for the most part nobody smiles at yeah. me cause yeah. I'm a black man I know full well every white's not a racist but every black man's not a sex crazed rapist I was good in the hood in college I was ruined when walking I assumed to acknowledge the other humans I try to walk big with my chin bone lifted up overcompensating like I really don't give a fuck today I saw a lady say hi to a stranger then avoid my eyes like I'm a white person strangler Walking past voters in the Democratic blocks That hit the windows and the automatic locks If not reparations, give me free black therapy And tell people you're scared of them and makes them act scarily I don't want you, your purse, or your pocketbook Them dumb yoga pants, boots, or fur with the octopus Trust, I'm not trying to polish your toes Take your wallet and phone or follow you home it's all so fine and dandy when the show starts Before then avoid it like a ghost fart I guess what ups and downs but for the most part Nobody smiles at me cause I'm a black man Until the show starts Before then avoid it like a ghost fart I guess what ups and
0: downs but- If you're enjoying Books, Beats, and Beyond, do us a big favor. Go into any of our episodes, into the show notes, and you will see a big iTunes icon. Click on that icon, and it takes take you to a place where you can subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you did this already, thank you so much. You go a little bit later into the book, and uh, you talk about instead of calling it um, institutional racism, we should call it structural racism. Why? And what does <laughs> structural racism look like?
1: Well, honestly, I think it's all much of a muchness, but, you know, I wanted to use the word structural rather than institution because I wanted people to see it, see the issue broad, like more broadly than you know our most recognised institutions. So obviously in the book I lay out the, some of the most recent stats to do with race and inequality in Britain. So you know a black boy. Um, is three times more likely than the rest of his school's population to be excluded from school. Mm. And, you know, racial bias in the criminal justice system, which leads to a situation where um, black and Asian people are far more likely to be um, get harsh treatment in the criminal justice system for drug possession than their white counterparts who have done basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can recognize schools, and we can recognize the general criminal justice system, but the argument that I, I want to make you know, and universities as well, you know, black students getting lower attainment, et cetera, et cetera, despite the fact that black students, black kids do better in school than their white working class counterparts. Yeah. And then, you know, in the job market, um, people with African and Asian sounding names are far less likely to um, be called to interview than their white counterparts, even though they've got the same qualifications and experience. So Sounds like, like America. <laughs> right, right. So like, we know that this is a global problem in our Western countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but repeatedly, like, we can see those institutions for what they are, but the argument that I w- make is that what I'm not saying by pointing out those disparities is that the teaching, pro- edu- you know, the teaching um, profession is populated by members of the KKK, or, you know, or that our hospitals and our criminal justice system and all of our judges are raving me- members of um, far right groups, yeah. but rather, um, The system—it's just much broader than that, right? So it's also about the biases that people bring to their jobs, whether they recognise them or not, Um, and and what that means on a on a structural scale. Because the issue with Black children being excluded from school is not just about the teachers and the um and the like head teachers who are who are you know teaching them it's also because those biases are held in and out of that particular job right yeah you know like so so deep yeah it's really about the structure it's about the society that we are of Mm -hmm. as well as the institutions that we're in and so that's what i really mean when i'm talking about structural institutional racism you know
0: I, that that makes perfect sense. You know, it's like not just the system, but it's deeper than that. It's something that's like almost in the psyche, almost like so yeah. subconscious that they don't even realize that it's happening. And that used, the
1: yeah. line I have in the book, which is whiteness is an occupying force in the mind, mm. and uh, yeah. that's like directly influenced by you know theorists such such as Fanon. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, we're really talking about um, and and of course whiteness is not just a like, mental occupier, it's certainly a physical op- occupier, Absolutely. Yeah. you know, yeah. globally.
0: Yeah. How about, like, what are your what are your thoughts around, like, people that hear that that consider themselves progressives and liberals and they say something like, I don't see race, I don't see color, I'm colorblind. What, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings behind someone who will say something like that? Well,
1: I mean, you can say that if you want, <laughs> um, but it doesn't negate the material circumstances that we're dealing with yeah um just like i'm not going to leave my house in a t-shirt and shorts while it's raining and be like well i don't see rain right So it's there (laughs) um and like yes it's harder to see than the rain because it's not physical Mm -hmm. um but the but the but the structural disadvantage is there and like Mm -hmm. repeatedly over and over again like independent data and even government sanctioned data shows us the bias over and over again yeah so, um, you can just pretend, but as far as I'm concerned, like pretending that a problem doesn't exist, um, doesn't solve it.
0: Right. That, that's almost like when I hear that, it almost is like a great representation of, of white privilege. Like you can just say you don't see something and there it is and just completely ignore it. Like <laughs> that is like part of your privilege in a sense.
2: Yeah,
1: absolutely. And yeah. There are certainly, I think white people who are like, well, you know, I don't think this is a problem. Hmm. Yeah. So it's not a problem. But um I think that our <laughs> I think that um our view on global inequality should probably be less narrow and my- myopic than yeah, that.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah. Um there was a, a a something in the book that touched me. It it, the, it wasn't the same experience, but I think a lot of children or when we're younger have this kind of this kind of encounter you 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 talked about when you were four years old you asked your mom when are you going to turn white why did you say that and also after that kind of go into and define white privilege
1: sure well i certainly wasn't a critical race theorist when i was four (laughs) years old um but what i was was just an observant child you know Mm -hmm. i enjoyed watching the cartoons i loved reading i loved to read books and um i noticed fairly quickly that um, everybody I liked in in the TV and films and books I was reading was white. Like white was neutral. White was the default. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, I'm a good person,
2: right.
1: uh, and I know I'm a human, so I must be turning white eventually, which <laughs> right. is what I asked her You know. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose you know, again on reflection, because it's with reflection that really gives us insight into how we were feeling at the time. Mm-hmm. Um. On reflection I was thinking I mean I I that's when I clocked onto it, you know, that's when I realised there's a problem here. Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of people tell me, you know, of course the book is written from you know, there's a lot of first person in it, like it's certainly my perspective as well as my journalism, but the book is ultimately less about my particular experience and more about whiteness as a dominant ideology. Yeah. Which is why I, I keep coming across people just like yourself and you know, Asian people living in Australia, and you know, African people in Europe, people with vastly different life experiences than mine, who still can resonate, and that is because we are all dealing with whiteness as a dominant ideology, and mm-hmm. we're we're all attempting to navigate how it marginalizes us. All yeah,
4: right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and um, I think what, what uh, there was a part where you were talking about um, how even leftists and progressives, you know, are take offense to the conversation of um white privilege because uh the conversation and I quote uh subverts the social pyramid of oppression with the oppressed group at the top. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so that was me uh quoting um a white leftist here in the UK. Mm. Um I think one thing that we have you know, as far as I concern, I'm not going to respond to that particular quote. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to use it as an example of, of the pushback. Yeah. Um, but more broadly I think that um you know, whiteness as a dominant ideology is a great unifier, um, amongst white people oh, yeah. and of all mm-hmm. political persuasions. Yeah. You know? Right. So right, left, feminist, you know, this, that, the other, like when it comes to defending that ideology i, I really think even if they don 't realize they're doing it, they um, are. yeah they really band together mm-hmm. um, yeah and I think that the pushback of, of what like some white people on the left call identity politics, which is basically like anything that decenters white men, they call identity politics
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah yeah
1: I think that like that pushback you see in that pushback, you really see alliances between like white people on the left and those on the far right you know real alliances because i think deep down you know i'm not a psychologist this is all my guessing but i think deep down they realize that they're under they feel that they're under threat by this by this politics by this narrative
0: right right and 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 that's that's interesting that that you say that because you know like you said it is a it is a, a unifier regardless if you feel like you're progressive liberal whatever like, deep down, that is, like, the ultimate unification that we're trying to expose, uh, mm-hmm. uh, exposed. And and it makes you think, why? Why why do you unify like that? What are you afraid of? Like, what is the fear? Oh, absolutely. You know?
1: And I, I that's a question that I continue to be fascinated by. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, people ask me that question. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what I did was... In the book, I interviewed a white person who I think is now a self-confessed in both thought and action. She's a critical anti-racist. But mm. I interviewed her about her journey to that critical anti-racism. And I said, well, what were you so afraid of? Yeah. What did you feel you had to lose by um, by understanding this perspective? Why were you so defensive? Because, you know, it's very difficult to ask the person who's defensive. Right. It's a little bit easier to ask somebody who's got past that defensiveness. Right. And and what she said was that she was worried about coming across as wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was a lot of ego, she said.
0: Yeah. I mean, that kind of makes sense because it's so deep down in you. It's like your you're, you're core. And if you're mm. trying to say that my core is wrong, yeah, that's going to be <laughs> – definitely shake up the person. And well, you, absolutely. Yeah. And you talk about that, a little bit about a fear of a black planet, right?
1: Mm. W- what does that mean? Well, I think that in that fear, that defensiveness is a concern that they're about to lose out on something. Mm. You know, one thing that um, basically white nationalists say is they basically, they articulate this as white genocide. Mm. Um, And they're the ones who give it a name. But honestly, I think that that fear comes from people, from white people, even who are not, who don't consider themselves white nationalists. White nationalists just give it a name because it's... absolute core of their politics
0: right right
1: right, exactly Uh, but that fear is basically fear of no longer being the powerful (laughs) majority you know Mm -hmm. and so like it comes out like in the book i quote our uh, you know watershed moment for this politics which is in the 1960s and the politician enoch powell um he made this anti-immigration speech and he said you know in this country in 50 years the black man will have the whip hand over the white man.
0: Wow. And,
1: and in that, you know, to me, that what we have to recognize with this fear is that it's a tacit recognition of the current power dynamics,
0: mm, you know. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's the opposite, right? I get, Yeah. Um, so it's not like they don't know that, that the power dynamic exists. It's that they're in favor of it.
0: Mm, yeah. yeah
1: people who are in fear of a black planet really think that, you know, us as anti-racists, I say us, I assume that you're an anti-racist. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, They really think that we are trying to just, instead of like, campaign for our liberation, they think that we are campaigning to subjugate them. (laughs)
2: Right, yeah, yeah.
1: It's really weird to have to say, no, I'm not actually interested in subjugating you. I right. just want everybody to be free to fulfill their own potential. Yeah, you
0: know? yeah, like it's some that's, revenge. That's what, yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, that's what they think is on the way.
0: Right, you know? right, right.
1: So that's what I would consider to be fear of a black planet.
0: Yeah, and you know, I was uh, I was watching something on, uh, some post on one of the social media, and there was this little w- confrontation that happened in a city where there was this um. I think I think he was a, a Nazi um, or a skinhead, and there was this black man right there. They were all in a group together, and he, the black man went over and hugged the 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 uh, the skinhead and was like, "I love you, man. Why don't you like me? What is it about me?" And all the guy could say, the skinhead was, "I don't know." <laughs> so that's almost like deep down, you really do not understand. You've been taught this fear, this hate, and you can't even really articulate it. It's just mm-hmm. that, that's how deep down it is, and the, 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 the fight for trying to get on that equal ground is intense if they can't really even identify the reason why they are reacting, you know?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, I personally would not recommend anyone go and hug another. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> for self-care reasons. Yeah,
0: I think that's but why no, it went viral. I guess we'll
1: see that guy for doing it. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it made a great photo opportunity. <laughs> yeah,
0: it sure did. <laughs> we'll be right back.
2: Ooh. See, she's. T- The am Desert
0: started talking uh about uh race and so forth you were actually embraced feminism prior to embracing anti-racism can you talk about how feminism shaped you and and uh your transition to anti-racism
1: yeah sure i mean i actually always say from the start it was like the two were very interlinked to me Hmm. like so yeah my feminist politics i think like i Got there first, but very quickly, like within months, uh, the same analysis was absolutely the same for race for me. Mm. It seemed like a absolute no brainer. It seemed obvious, and so it was an affront to me when the white women I was surrounded by uh, didn't see it the same way, and they felt that there was no issues with race, nothing to nothing to see here. You wow. Know? Yeah. Um, and so, and if anything, that made me that made my anti-racist politics more sharp more articulate because Mm. i was constantly in a position where i was surrounded by people who really were not in favor of anything i was saying at all Mm. Um, and you know i chart that in the book as you have read it i'm sure you know Mm. um it was a really difficult time and sort of ended up with me in a situation where um i was invited on a national radio show bbc women's hour it's sort of an institution in the uk um, and it's an odd one. It speaks about a lot of things to do with women, including mm. feminism. Mm-hmm. And then also, just because of the demographic that it's aimed at, um, it also talks about gardening and baking cakes. And, uh, oh. and <laughs> Interesting. It's an odd spread. But, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was uh, on that show speaking about the year of feminism early 2014. And uh, everybody else on the panel was white. And uh, it was put to me to explain why black feminism was important, why intersectionality was important, like why we should recognize that race and gender are deeply interlinked when it comes to inequality mm-hmm. wow. and so I did and then one of the white women uh, promptly said, yeah, and that's important, but also people have been using that to bully me online and I think that that's just as important oh just my God. as important
0: bully okay and
1: I, it's not a coincidence, but a month after that uh exchange, which ended up by the end of the day a uh, British conservative politician, well, former conservative politician, Louise Mensch. I believe she lives in New York now, tweeting conspiracy theories all the time. Um, but before she was <laughs> in New York, she was in the UK, and she decided that on on hearing that, it um, was important to conclude that I, in that exchange, was a bully, and mm-hmm. I was the aggressor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so it's not a coincidence that a month after... That exchange, I ended up writing the essay that kicks off the book, ah.
0: explaining why I couldn't talk to people about race anymore. Yeah, that'd do it. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah, I think that's funny because, you know, as a as a feminist or uh, dealing with feminism, they under you understand you know patriarchy, right, and all the little subtle things that it does, right. So why is it so hard for them to understand? You know, whiteness as a political structure in the very same way. You know, like.
1: Well, I, I think it's because they're invested in it, um, mm. and I'd love to be proved wrong. But I believe <laughs> that it's because they're invested in it, and mm. uh, you know, I think contrary to popular belief, I don't actually hate white people. I'm yeah. just not a fan of white people who are invested in upholding the uh, this damaging ideology. Right. You know. And, that, and I, of course, because of my work, now know many white women who are feminists are also invested in deconstructing, you know, white supremacy right. and ending it. Right. Um, but there's also many white women who are not even a, don't even attempting to be critical of it. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're not critical of it, you are invested in it because we're yeah. all raised to be invested in it. Right.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And the whole argument. Just want to, you know, they they say uh, people always say. You know, it's class and not race that is the true battle to be fought. What 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 would your response be to that?
1: Oh, I mean, that's something I hear in Britain all the time. Um, and, yes, we have a horrendously entrenched class system. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also happens to be that um, if you're not white, you're just far more likely to be in the working class. You're mm-hmm. far more likely to be living in poverty. You're far more likely to be unemployed. Yep. So these things are absolutely interlinked, absolutely um, you know, they intersect, yeah. they intersect, Um, it's useful for communication reasons to speak about them each just distinctly, mm-hmm. but it's also uh, an imperative to discuss how they cross over. I hope that's what I try and do in the book, you know, there's a whole chapter on how race and class intersect, there's a whole chapter on how race and gender intersect, yeah. you know, the book's been out for a few months now in the UK, and some people have pulled me up, they said, what about race and disability, race and sexuality, yeah. Um. And I don't dispute that that there's whole chapters on there's whole chapters to be written on how those things intersect as well. Yeah. Um, however, I'm not sure I'm not, if I'm the best person to provide that analysis. But yeah. I'm always excited and interested to read about. It,
0: yeah, you know? yeah. I think I think it, it was great how you talked about that because when people say they don't intersect, that is just ridiculous. Because there's a lot of talk whistle politics that <laughs> use that. And it kind of triggers in people's brains what they're talking about, like,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know. So they do definitely intersect, and 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 to try to say that one is matters over the other, it's, it's like you said, it's inseparable, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So you you talk about how discussing racism is about discussing white identity, it's about mm-hmm. white ag- anxiety. Can you elaborate?
1: Yeah, I mean. There's an awful lot of myths and lies that white people have been taught. Well, we've all been taught about white identity and whiteness and white supremacy. Um, and I think that racism, like the whole point of it, is to continue to sanctify those myths and lies um, mm-hmm. and convince us that that if we uh, if we don't, if we challenge this, then we're the ones in the wrong. Um, and and I think this really links into that whole like fear of a black planet sort of discussion as well. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, yeah, it's very much about white anxiety, white fears, um, because you know I think that a lot of white people now in a sort of, we're in a situation both in the US and in the UK um, where demographers are predicting that uh, in half a century each country will no longer be majority white and. Yeah. Um, and those people who claim to be colorblind, are also very concerned about that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah right. I think in that is a fear of their own irrelevance, fear of a lack of power. Who right. are they if they're not dominating? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know um, that,
0: right there, that's a great point. I, I, I remember watching something where they went around a circle. It was a diverse circle, and they would say, "What do you like about being black?" And they would talk about the culture and so forth. And then they went to some white people and say, "What do you like about being white?" It was everything not black, like I don't get pulled over and so yeah. forth. It's just like you said, knowing that it, one day they're not going to be the, the they're going to be the minority, kind of triggers that 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 up, that 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 shaking of their foundation in a sense, right?
2: Mm.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. So so whose problem really is racism? Racism. I feel like as black people, we've been fighting this battle forever. Like, is it – are we still supposed to be the ones fighting this battle? Like, who, who else should be involved? Whose problem is it really to try to break this?
1: I think I'm at the point now where I've been to enough, like, diversity panels and, like, events where, like, the room is full of black people – All people of color, or both, and we're discussing the problems. And there's no white people in the room. Yeah. And like now, I just want to go to events where like it's white people saying, "Why have we created this?" (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what, and I think that like that's going to have to come from those white people who who purport to be liberal, purport they they claim to be progressive. Mm I think that's good. That's that conversation about why have we created this system? Why, why is our workplace still like this? Like, what are we doing wrong? Yeah. I think that's what, I think that they need to get together and start discussing that stuff. Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes I hear of people who, you know, they're white friends. They may have read this, my book, or they've read the extract of it, or they've read something similar because there's loads of fantastic, you know, really incredible quality writing about race out in the, out in the world in the minute a lot of it coming from the US mm-hmm. and they sort of read it and they're like wow oh my god this has changed my mind and so what they do is they go and um, get in contact with their black friend or their <laughs> friend of color <laughs> yeah. who cares about these issues and they're like wow have you seen what I've read like wow this is so amazing like you'll be interested in it too and right. <laughs> I was just doing a, I did an event just a few days ago where somebody raised this and I was like What would probably be more useful for them is to just send it to their white friends instead. Don't think about these things, you know, like, why send it to me? I already know. Right, yeah.
0: Uh, I'm on (laughs) chapter five. (laughs)
1: Yeah, exactly. And then go and have the battle with their white friends who don't want to hear it, because I'm sick of it. I don't want to have the battle with their white friends. Yeah. But if, if a white person claims to be progressive, they should go and have that battle with their white friends. and. Let, let us preserve our energy <laughs> <you
0: know? laughs> right right yeah i was i was interviewing someone the other day and um i was asking them you know when you you have white people that ask what can i do how can i help and it kind of her her response kind of lent to what you're saying like uh talk to your friends about it talk about it at the dinner table don't bring up the excuse oh you know it's at a family function i didn't want to disrupt anything i know uncle bob says crazy stuff, but I didn't think it was the right time. No, that that is the right time. Like seriously. You know. Yeah I man, we have to do it out all the time on our end, but if you really want to confront this, that's those are the times, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
4: We'll be right back. Yo, yo, the abstract with the mighty most deaf. White folks gotta buff on the cross beneath their But they'll say it out loud again. When they get with their close associates and friends, you know, Stick it in with their friends at the job happy hour at the bar while the song is in their car. And even if it's never said and lips stay sealed, their actions reveal how their hearts really feel. Like, late night I'm on a first class flight. The only brother in sight. The flight attendant catch right I sit down in my seat to seat. She approached officially, talking about excuse me. Her lips curl up into a tight space. Cause she don't believe that I'm in the right place. Showed her my water pass, And then she saw the gas, all embarrassed putting Extra line I'm from water glass An hour later, here she come by walking past I hate to be a pest, but my, my son, 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 love son autograph. Autograph. Wow.
2: I love I have all your
4: autograph oh, I they, they, they stay on <laughs> Nigga patrol on American roads But when you travel abroad They got world, world nigga law, nigger law. Some folks get on the plane, go where they please But I go overseas and I get Overseas. London, Heathrow Me and my people, they think That illegals are synonym for Negroes. Faraway places Customs agents flagrant. They think the dark faces Smuggle weight in their cases Bags inspected. Now we arrested Attention directed to contents Of our intestines. Urinalysis Followed by x-rays interrogated And detained to damn near the next day No evidence, no apology And no regard. Even for the big american rap star for us especially us most especially and mr. nigga vip jail cell just for me if i knew you were coming i'd have baked the cake just got some shoe polish paint, him, paint him, a him a face they say they want you successful but then they make it stressful you start keeping pace they start changing up the tempo now who is the cat riding out on the town stage won't want to stop him in his ride pat him down mr. nigga Nigger nigger, nigga, he got the speakers in the trunk with the bass on truck. Now, who is the cat with the $100 bill? They got to send it to the tab to make sure
1: the shit is real, Mr. Nigga. Nigga, nigga, nigga,
4: nigga.
0: How has writing this book changed you in a sense?
1: Oh, um, I think it's interesting sort of taking a book out to the public with a title like this because the first question I get is, well, why aren't you? To which I have begun to respond, well, Do you really think I'm logistically not talking to white people about race Hmm. in the publishing of a book where publishing is just an (laughs) industry that A is very white, (laughs) you know, B, you know, journalism in the UK, like it's 90 odd percent white, so almost all the journalists I dealt with are white. Mm -hmm. And then I'm, you know, I've toured with the book, you know, in the UK, in Canada, in Australia, New Zealand. um, An awful lot of white people turn up (laughs) to (laughs) those events, but like I've had to do a lot of explaining, like, you do realise that it would be logistically impossible for me to avoid <laughs>
0: white <people laughs> Yeah.
1: In in the discussion of this work, so please just put that assumption in the bin, <laughs> right, you know. How right. um, it changed me? I don't know, it's just interesting, really, because there, you know, I've always been a writer who writes primarily for self-expression and not necessarily to be read, mm-hmm. and so it's sort of funny that it's being widely read. You know, it's exciting. But then people start looking to you as the spokesperson on these issues.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, there's, I think like what I've learned from that this journey is that that's not what I want to do. I don't want to be the spokesperson on these issues. Mm-hmm. I want to continue to express myself and do the journalism and the research. Um, but I don't want to be the spokesperson. Mm-hmm. Um, how's it changed me? Gosh, I don't know. I mean. I think that one thing that that's absolutely changed for me is that I don't feel that deep-seated frustration anymore. Mm. That's because I have a place and I have a voice and I have a seat at the table. And I also recognize that a lot of people feel heard through me. Like, they're glad that the work is being done, particularly in Britain, where it feels like it's been starved of oxygen. And, yeah. And, uh, and so, I, you know, I feel a sense of responsibility. Um, but I also, I no longer feel the deep-seated frustration. I feel... Much like I did at the, in the inception of this book, mm. I feel like quite passionately about getting getting what I want to say across in my own way. And so, if anything, the uh, writing and publication of the book has made me more belligerent in uh,
0: doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you could. I, I I got the sense that, and as I was reading, it was very therapeutic. Like, oh, thank thank you, you know, because some people might look at this like um, I'm paranoid or something, you know, and mm. The way you you articulated that, because it's hard to articulate sometimes, and the way you did that was just brilliant. And
1: uh, thank you, thank yeah. you, that means a lot.
0: Yeah. So lastly, what what do you want a reader to mainly take away from this book? What what will be that core?
1: Well, I think like it's different for every reader. Mm-hmm. My intention, I think, as soon as it like it, it's published, my intention melts away, and it's all about what <laughs> people take from it. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think that like if People feel like yourself that ha- it has been a therapeutic <laughs> um journey mm-hmm. that that their frustrations are validated. Then I'm happy. Yeah. And and likewise, I think like if a white reader comes away and they go, "Wow!" Like my worldview has been deeply challenged and subsequently changed after reading this. Then I'm happy. Yeah. Because for me, you know, particularly as the book is so situated in a British context, it was very important. All I wanted to do, like. All I wanted to do in every strand of my work around race, which ended up being a book, was to fundamentally change the way that the conversation about race was happening in Britain. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm glad and proud to say that I think the book has contributed to that, like, hugely. So much so that the writer started to get a bit scared.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah.
1: And there was even a, uh, you know, one of the right ring magazines, um, Wrote a whole cover feature about how politics like mine are bad, and even uh, sampled yeah. some of my work in it. And I was like, wow, this really means that I'm making an impact. Yes, it <laughs> and does. Changing the way people think about, um, changing the ways that people think about race in this country, which I'm happy about, and I'm excited to be sort of joining a sort of a great tradition um, in in that kind of work. Cause, but more importantly, I think that like I consider. I consider myself to be part of a movement sort of first and foremost and um if for a short time for a couple of years my work it gives people in that movement the words that they need to articulate what they need to say then I'm then I feel like job done you know
0: yeah and I will say job well done because (laughs)
2: uh although
0: although you were talking about a lot of uh 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 British history it it, we needed to hear that you know over over here in, in America like oh yeah it's very similar almost almost identical to a lot of the things we went through it, just to hear it from um a black woman's perspective in particular it, it was very very amazing so um just want to say thank you so much and uh con- well,
2: thank you continue- thank you that's my
0: yes please continue the work and um just want to say thank you so much for being on book speaks and beyond
2: Well,
1: thanks for having me. I've
0: really enjoyed it. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes. Or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we would then put toward the operations of the show. Um, And also please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore.